We make sure that our children are well educated so that they shall be inculcated with noble culture. People tend to believe that noble culture is that which shall ensure a decent livelihood and help solve the problems of daily living. Very few, hardly anyone, have their attention tuned towards God. Many people even have sufficient material wealth that they perceive no need at all for calling upon God, as does the noble Arjun to his friend and charioteer, the accomplished sage Krishna, in the Gita. In the end, however, all material wealth and seeming security is perishable. At the time of death, even though they were attached to those things, people still have to leave them behind. Given this undisputed reality, the only path open to any of us is to understand during our lifetime, while we are still in our body, the ways to move towards the Supreme Being. This is the essential purpose that is being transmitted through these audio cassettes of Yatart Gita. Matmane Namaha Yatart Gita Srimad Bhagavad Gita Chapter 9 Stirring to Spiritual Enlightenment Until Chapter 6, Krishna made a systematic investigation of yoga. Its precise meaning, as we have seen, is the conduct of yagya. Yagya represents that special form of worship which provides access to God, and in which the whole animate and inanimate world is offered as a sacrifice. The immortal essence is known with restraint of mind and ultimate dissolution of the restrained mind itself. The one who partakes of what is generated by Yajna at its completion is a truly enlightened man, a realized sage and accomplished teacher, who is united with the eternal God, the Supreme Universal Spirit. This union, joining together of the individual and the cosmic soul, is named yoga. The conduct of yajna is called action. Krishna then went on to say in chapter 7 that the doers of this action know him along with the all-pervasive God, perfect action, adityam and adidaiv, as well as adibhut and adiyagya. He further added in chapter 8 that this is salvation, which is the supreme goal. In the present chapter, he raises the question of the greatness of the soul who is endowed with yoga. Pervading all, he is nonetheless uninvolved. Although he acts, he is yet a non-doer. Besides illumining the nature and influence of this accomplished soul, the chapter also contains a warning against such hindrances as other gods in the way of the practice of yoga. It also stresses the importance of finding shelter under a realized sage, an accomplished teacher, who is possessed of such a soul. Thank you. 
The Lord said, I shall instruct you well with analogy in this mysterious knowledge, O sinless one, Arjun, after knowing which you will be liberated from this sorrowful world. By offering to impart this knowledge with Vigyan, Krishna means that he will illustrate it with the achievements of a great soul of attainment, how he functions simultaneously at all places, how he enlightens, and how as a charioteer he always stands beside the Self. Knowing this, Arjuna will be emancipated from this world of misery where happiness is impermanent. This knowledge is the monarch of all learning as well as of all mysteries, most sacred, doubtlessly propitious, easy to practice, and indestructible. Substantiated by illustration, this knowledge is the sovereign of all learning. But the word learning here does not mean mastering a language or scholarship in its usual sense. True learning is that which enables the man who has acquired it to go along God's way until he has won salvation. If he gets entangled in the vanity of his achievements or in the material world while he is on the way, it is evident that his learning has failed. His learning, then, is not knowledge, but a veil of ignorance. It is only regal learning, Rajvidya, or spiritual enlightenment, which is profitable beyond any doubt. It is the king of all secret teaching, because one can approach it only after the practice of yoga is brought to perfection by the unraveling of the knots of both knowledge and ignorance. Holiest of the holy, and blessed with excellence, it is also manifestly fruitful. The profit from it is so transparent. No sooner does a man have it than he is rewarded. It is not the blind faith that we will be rewarded in the next life if we are virtuous in this life. Krishna has told Arjuna in chapter 2 that the seed of yoga never perishes. Practicing it in even a small measure provides liberation from the great fear of repeated birth and death. In chapter 6, Arjuna requested the Lord to tell him the lot of the feeble worshipper who strays from yoga and is therefore deprived of the perception which is its final achievement. Krishna then said that the primary need is to know the way of this action, or yoga, after which, if a man just takes a couple of steps on it, the merit earned by them is never destroyed. He carries this sanskar along with him to the next life, and by virtue of it performs the same action with every birth. Thus, practicing yoga over many lives, he at last arrives at the state of salvation, the supreme goal. The same point is made again in the present chapter, 
When Krishna says that although the practice of yoga is easy and indestructible, faith is its indispensable requirement. Ashraddhana Purusha Dharmasyasya Parantapa Aprapya Maam Nivartante Men who have no faith in this knowledge, O Parantap, do not attain to me and are doomed to roaming about the mortal world. Even the smallest bit of practice of this Dharma is never destroyed, but the man whose mind is not fully centered on the object of his worship undergoes repeated birth and death instead of attaining to Krishna. Now the Yogeshwar speaks about God's omnipresence. Maya tatamidam sarvam jagadam vyakta murtina matsthani sarvabhutani nachaham the whole world is pervaded by me, the unmanifest supreme being, and all beings dwell within my will, but I am not in them. The unmanifest form in which Krishna exists spreads through every atom of the universe, and all beings have their life within him, but he is not in them because he exists in an unmanifest form. Since accomplished sages are one with the unmanifest God, they discard their bodies and act in the same divine state. And even all beings are not within me, and such is the power of my Yogmaya that my spirit, the creator and preserver of all beings, is not within them. Even all beings are not within Krishna, because they are mortal and dependent on nature. But such is the greatness of his yoga, that although he creates and sustains all beings, his spirit is not in them. I am in the form of the self, not within those beings. This is the achievement of yoga. Krishna cites an instance to elucidate the point. Be it known to you that all beings dwell in me, just as the great wind that roams everywhere always dwells in the sky.
The wind is always in the sky, but cannot taint and affect its brightness. Similarly, all beings are within Krishna, but he is unblemished like the sky. The problem of the power of yoga is now resolved. So Krishna next takes up the question of what the yogi does. All beings, O son of Kunti, attain to my nature and merge into it at the end of a cycle, or kalp, and I recreate them at the beginning of another cycle. He reshapes beings with special care at the beginning of a phase. They had existed earlier, but they were misshapen. Now he gives them a more refined, more perfect shape. They who were lying in a state of insensibility, he now renders conscious. He also prompts beings to kalp in the other sense of the word. Besides cycle of time, the word kalp also means a change for the better. It is the beginning of a kalp when, escaping from demoniacal and negative impulses, a man comes by the treasure of divinity, and it comes to a close with the worshippers becoming one with God. A kalp ceases to be after its purpose is achieved. The commencement of worship is the beginning, while the culmination at which the goal is perceived is its end, the point when the soul, freed from such feelings as attachment and repulsion, which effect the creation of all beings who have to be reborn, dwells in his identical, eternal form. This is what Krishna means by saying that beings merge into his nature. But what kind of nature can belong to a sage who has annihilated all nature and become one with God? Does his nature still survive? As Krishna has said in the 33rd verse of chapter 3, all beings attain to their own nature. They act according to their predominant property, and even the sage who has achieved knowledge by direct perception acts according to his disposition. He works for the good of those who have straggled. The conduct, the way of life, of the sage who dwells in the ultimate essence, is his nature. He conducts himself according to the state of his being. At the end of Kalp, men attain to this conduct, this way of life, of realized sages, of accomplished teachers. Krishna then throws further light on the accomplishment of such great souls. Prakritim Swamavashtabhya Visrijami Puna Puna Bhutagramamimam Kritsnam Avasham Prakritir Vashat I repeatedly shape all these beings who are helplessly dependent on their innate properties according to their action. 
accepting the way of life which is given to him, Krishna continuously and with special care fashions and refashions all beings who dwell in their own nature and are dominated by the three properties. He prompts them to advance towards the state of his own self. Does this mean, however, that he also is bound by action? Unattached and disinterested in these acts, O Dananjay, I am not bound by action. According to the ninth verse of chapter 4, a sage's way of action is unworldly. The fourth verse of the present chapter says that he works in an unmanifest way. Now, Krishna says the same thing here again, that he is not attached to the actions he performs imperceptibly. Since the union of his soul with the Supreme Spirit has bestowed a state of detachment on him, he is no longer bound by action. Since he is now abiding in the very goal that is achieved by action, he is not compelled to do it. So far, the question was of the relationship between acts of nature and the innate property, of the sage's way of life and action. Now what is that which Maya creates by assuming the property that belongs to Krishna? That too is Kalp. Maya dhyakshena prakritihi suyate sacharacharam in association with me, O son of Kunti, my Maya shapes this world of the animate and the inanimate, and the world revolves like a wheel of recurrence for the aforesaid reason. By virtue of his spirit that permeates the whole world, this Maya, the three-propertied nature in both its eightfold insensate and conscious forms, shapes the animate and inanimate world. This is the inferior kelp, and it is because of this that the world moves in its cycle of birth and death, of coming and going. This lowly kelp that nature brings about, mutable and destructive, is accomplished by Maya by virtue of Krishna's innate property. It is not made by him, but the kalp of the seventh verse, which marks the commencement of the supreme goal, is a creation of the sage himself. In this kalp, he himself is the doer who creates with special care. But in the other kalp, nature is the agent which by mere reflection of its might creates the state of transience in which there is change of bodies, of time, and of ages. But although Krishna is so all-pervasive, the deluded do not yet know him. Avajananti ma 
The deluded who do not know my ultimate being regard me in the human form as but an inferior mortal. The ignorant who do not know his identity with the Supreme Spirit, the God of all beings, regard Krishna as human and therefore paltry. He dwells in the exalted state of that Supreme Spirit who is the God of all beings, but ignorant men do not know it because he is in mortal form. They address him as a man, and they are hardly to blame. When they look at Krishna, they see only the body of the great soul. How, then, are they to know that he dwells in the being of the great God? It is now explained why they are unable to realize the truth. The ignorant are, like evil spirits, afflicted with the property of darkness, and so their hopes and actions and knowledge are all futile. The unaware are possessed of futile hope, which can never be fulfilled, futile action, which binds, and futile knowledge, which is really ignorance. Lying in the chasm of unconsciousness and characterized by the gullible nature of devils and demons, by demoniacal nature, they believe Krishna to be but a man. Demons and devils represent merely a property of the mind, which has nothing to do with any caste or class. Men with such an inclination are unable to know the reality of Krishna, but sages know him and adore him. Mahatmanastumam partha Daivim prakritimashritaha Bhajantyananyamanaso But, O Parth, they who have found shelter in divine nature and know me as the eternal, imperishable source of all beings, worship me with perfect devotion. The sages who take refuge in pious impulses, the treasure of divinity, and regard Krishna as the primal source of all beings, unmanifest and eternal, always meditate upon him with devotion, only to him, and without permitting the thought of anyone else into their mind. The following verse dwells upon the mode of this worship. Yatantascha 
Always engaged in the recital of my name and virtues, ever active to realize me, and constantly offering obeisance to me, devotees with a firm determination worship me with undivided faith. Abiding firmly in the observance of the act of devotion, bowing low to Krishna in homage and dwelling in him, men who know the truth endeavor to realize him and worship him with staunch devotion. They are consistently engaged in the act of remembrance and recital, which is nothing else than the yagya that has already been illumined. The same rite is here restated in brief. While some worship me by Gyan Yagya as the all-encompassing Supreme Spirit with the feeling that I am all, some worship me with a sense of identity, some with a sense of being separate from me, regarding me as master and themselves as servants, while yet others worship me in many a different fashion. Men who are aware of reality worship Krishna by practicing the appointed way of discrimination or knowledge after a due appraisal of their assets and liabilities as well as of their own strength. Some others worship him with a feeling of being identical with him, the feeling that they have to be one with him by dissociating themselves from everything that is other than him, and they devote themselves to him with the total dedication of the way of selfless action. Similarly, there are many other forms of worship. In fact, however, these are all only the higher and lower phases of the same spiritual observance that is called yagya. Yagya begins with reverent service, but how is it performed? By his own admission, Yogeshwar Krishna is himself the doer of yagya. If the sage does not act as the charioteer, the successful accomplishment of yagya is impossible. It is only by his guidance that the worshipper is able to know the stage of spiritual accomplishment at which he stands and the point on the way he has reached. Krishna then speaks about the performer of yagya. Aham kraturaham yagya svadhaham aham aushadham mantroham aham evajyam aham agniraham hutam I am the action that is undertaken, the yagya, the fulfillment of earlier resolutions, the healer, the sacred prayer, the oblation as well as the sacred fire, and I am also the sacrificial act of oblation. Krishna is the doer, the agent. In truth, the power behind the worshiper who always urges him on is that of the adored God. So the worshipper's accomplishment is only a gift from him. He is also the yagya, which is the appointed mode of worship. 
The man who tastes the nectar that is generated at the successful completion of yajna is united with the eternal God. Krishna is also the oblation, for it is in him that the endless sanskar of the past is dissolved. Their ultimate resolution is provided by him. He is also the remedy that cures the malady of worldly misery. Men are rid of this ailment by attaining to him. He is also the sacred incantation that is offered to the deity, for it is he who provides the strength by which the mind is concentrated on breath. Being the one who adds to the ardor of this deed, he is also the matter which is offered as oblation. He is also the sacred fire, because all desires of the mind are burnt out in his radiant flame. And he is also the sacrificial act of yajna. Here Krishna repeatedly speaks in the first person, I am, I am. The implication of this is only that it is he who stands inseparably with the individual self as an inspiration and leads the observance of yajna to successful completion by constant appraisal. This is named vigyan. The most revered Maharajaji would repeatedly tell us that the act of devotional adoration does not begin until the revered God appears as the charioteer to restrain each single breath. We may close our eyes, engage in the act of pious adoration, and mortify the senses by severe austerities, but unless the desired God comes down to the level at which we are and stands inseparably and watchful by the self, the essence of worship cannot be gained. This is why Maharajaji used to say, If you but behold me, I shall give you everything. It is the same as Krishna saying that he is the doer of all. Pitahamasya jagato Mata dhata pitamaha Vedyam pavitra mukara Riksama yajurevacha And I too am the bearer and preserver of the whole world as also the giver of rewards for action. Father, mother, and also the grandsire the sacred imperishable Om, who is worthy of being known, and all Ved, Rig, Sam, and Yajur. It is Krishna who supports the whole world. He is the father who provides, the mother who conceives and gives birth, and the grandsire who is the ancient source into whom all beings also merge at last. He is worthy of being known as also the sacred Om, which may also be interpreted as the self's resemblance to God. Aham plus Akara equal Omkara. That Om, God, is identical with him, and so his self is fit for knowing. He is also the agent of the three parts of the observance of Yog. Rig, adequate prayer. Sam, evenness of mind, and Yajur, the ordained Yajna for union with the Supreme Spirit. G 
गतिर्भरता प्रभु साक्षी निवास शरण सुहृत प्रभव प्रलय स्थान निधान I am the supreme goal, the sustainer and lord of all, the maker of good and evil, the abode and shelter of all, the benefactor who wants nothing in return, the beginning and the end, the fountainhead as well as that in whom all beings are dissolved, and also the indestructible primal energy. Krishna is the salvation that is the ultimate goal that everyone wishes to attain to. As the witness who stands as an onlooker and knows everything, he is the master of all beings. He is the imperishable primal cause, and he is also the doom, the destruction, in whom all good and evil are dissolved. He possesses all these glories. Moreover, तपाम्यहमहम् वर्षम् निग्रहनाम्युत्सृजामि च अमृतम् चैव मृत्युश्च सदसच्चाहमर्जुन I am the sun that burns I draw the clouds and also make them rain and O Arjun I am the draft of immortality as well as death, and I am also both substance and shadow. He is the sun, the giver of light, and yet there are many who regard him as unreal. Such men are victims of mortality, and so Krishna is also the punishment that is meted out to them. Men who do pious deeds enjoined by the three Ved, who have tasted nectar and freed themselves from sin, and who wish for heavenly existence through worshipping me by yagya, go to heaven, Indralok, and enjoy godly pleasures as a reward for their virtuous acts. Although they practice all the three parts of worship, prayer, rig, equal conduct, sam, and union, yajur, partake of the dim light of the moon, rayi, the form-giving substance, rid themselves of sin, and worship Krishna by the prescribed mode of yagya, such men pray for the attainment of heaven, because of which they are rewarded with mortality and have to be reborn. They worship him and also adopt the appointed mode, but they beseech for heavenly joys in return. So rewarded for their piety, they go to the abode of Indra and enjoy the celestial pleasures of gods. Krishna is thus also the provider of these pleasures. 
स्वर्गलोकम विशालम क्षीणे पुण्ये मर्त्यलोकम विशंतिधर्मुप्रपन्ना गता काम कामते With the gradual wearing out of the merits of their piety they go back to the mortal world after enjoying the pleasures of great heaven and it is thus that they who seek refuge in the desire oriented action prescribed by the three ved and covet joy are condemned to repeated death and birth the yagya they perform as well as its threefold means prayer evenness of mind and dedication that unites is the same and they also seek refuge in krishna but they have to undergo rebirth because of their desires so it is of the utmost importance that desire is thoroughly subdued but what is the lot of those who are liberated from all desire ananyaschintayanto I myself protect the yoga of men who abide in me with steady and undeviating faith and who worship me selflessly, constantly remembering me as God. Krishna himself bears the burden of the ardent worshippers progress along the path of yoga. He takes upon himself the responsibility for the protection of his yoga. Despite this, however, men are given to worshipping other gods. Although even covetous devotees indeed worship me in worshiping other gods their worship is against the ordained provision and therefore enveloped by ignorance Yogeshwar Krishna has here for the second time taken up the subject of other gods It was in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 7 that he first told Arjun that deluded men whose wisdom is ravished by desires worship other gods and that there truly exist no such entities It is Krishna who steadies and strengthens the faith of such worshipers in whatever it is inclined to whether a people tree a piece of rock some departed spirit or a goddess He is also the provider of their rewards. The fruits of devotion are doubtlessly achieved by these worshipers, but the rewards they obtain are momentary and ephemeral. They are here today, 
but they will be consumed tomorrow after they have been enjoyed. They wear out, whereas the rewards of the true worshippers of Krishna are never destroyed. So it is only the ignorant who have been robbed of their wisdom by desire that worship other gods. In verses 23 through 25 of the present chapter, Yogeshwar Krishna reiterates that they who adore other gods also really worship him, but their worship is improper because this form of devotion is not ordained. There is no power like gods, and to endeavor to realize them is therefore like striving for the unreal. But what exactly is wrong with the worship of other gods if it is in fact a worship of Krishna himself and also a begetter of rewards? Krishna answers the question thus. Aham hi sarvayajnana bhokta cha prabhureva cha na tumam abhijananti tattvenatashchavantite They have to undergo rebirth because they are ignorant of the reality that I am the enjoyer as well as the master of all yajna. Krishna is the enjoyer of yajna because whatever is offered as sacrifice is dissolved in him. He is the blessedness that results from yajna and also the master of the sacred rite. But they who do not know this fall from grace. They are destroyed, sometimes caught in the trap of worship of other gods and sometimes in the web of their own desires. Until they have perceived the essence, they are deprived even of the everlasting fulfillment of their desires. What ultimately becomes of them is disclosed in the following verse. Men who are devoted to gods attain to gods. Worshippers of ancestors attain to their ancestors. Worshippers of beings attain to the state of beings, and my worshippers attain to me. Rather than really attaining to gods because they are non-existent, their worshippers just delude themselves with fancies. They who practice ancestor worship are trapped in the abyss of the past. Worshippers of beings end up in mortal bodies. But they who are single-mindedly dedicated to Krishna attain to Him. Although yet in their mortal bodies, they truly become Him. That is the identity of the worshipper with the adored God. And such worshippers never come to grief. Moreover, even the mode of this worship of Krishna is so simple. Patram Pushpam Phalam Toyam Yome Bhaktya Prayachati 
तदहम भक्तुपरी अश्नामी प्रयतात्मना I lovingly accept the offerings of leaves, flowers, fruit, and water the selfless worshipper makes to me with true devotion. This loving acceptance by Krishna of whatever offering is made to him by the earnest and devoted worshipper is the commencement of devout reverence. Therefore, Yat karoshi yadashnasi you should, O son of Kunti, dedicate to me whatever you do, eat, offer as sacrifice, give as alms, and also your penance. Krishna will bear the responsibility for guarding the sphere of Arjuna's yoga if he performs all his deeds, from the humble act of eating to the mortification of his mind and senses to shape them in accordance with the nature of his quest, with a sense of total resignation. Shubha, shubha Possessed thus of the yoga of renunciation by the sacrifice of all your acts, you will be freed from good as well as evil fruits, which are the shackles of action and attain to me. In the above three verses, Krishna has systematically dealt with the means of accomplishment and its outcome. The three suggested ways are, first, offering of humble gifts such as leaves and flowers, fruit and water, with total devotion. Secondly, performance of action with a sense of dedication. And lastly, complete renunciation in the spirit of self-surrender. By practicing them, Arjuna will be doubtlessly freed from the bonds of action, and by this liberation, he will attain to the sublime state of Krishna. The terms liberation and achievement, as employed here, complement each other. Krishna then speaks about the profit that will accrue from the worshipper's attainment of his state. Samoham Sarvabhuteshu Nami Dveshu Stina Priya Ye Bhajanti Tumam Bhaktya Mahite Teshu Chapyaham Although I abide evenly in all beings, and there is no one who is either dear or hateful to me, Worshippers who contemplate me with loving devotion abide in me and I in them. Krishna pervades all beings in an equal way, but he has a special relationship with his wholly dedicated worshippers, 
for they live in him, and he in them. This is the only kinship he knows. The worshipper's mind and heart overflow with Krishna's presence, and there is then no difference between the one and the other. Does it mean, however, that only the most fortunate are privileged to undertake this act of divine adoration? In Yogeshwar Krishna's words, Even if a man of the most depraved conduct worships me incessantly, he is worthy of being regarded as a saint because he is a man of true resolve. If even a man of evil deeds remembers and adores Krishna with a single-minded devotion, believing that no object or god besides Krishna is worthy of worship, he is fit to be thought of as a sage. He is not yet a saint, but there is at the same time not even the least doubt of his becoming one, for he has devoted himself to the task with real determination. So everyone, you and I all, whatever be the circumstance of our birth, are entitled to the act of worship. The only condition is that the worshiper is a human, because man alone is capable of true resolve. The Gita is thus meant for the upliftment of sinners, as Krishna says. Shipram bhavati dharmatma shashvachanting nigachati kaunteya pratijani name bhakta pranashyati. Thus he shortly grows pious and achieves eternal peace. And so, O son of Kunti, you should know beyond any doubt that my worshipper is never destroyed. If engaged in devotional contemplation, even a wicked man soon grows righteous, becomes one with the Almighty God, and realizes the ultimate imperishable repose. Arjun is told to keep it in mind that Krishna's earnest devotee is never destroyed. Even if the effort somehow grows feeble, in the next life it is resumed from the very point at which it was discontinued earlier, and, beginning with what was done before, the worshipper presently attains to the most sublime peace. Therefore, all men of virtuous as well as of unrighteous conduct, and all others have the right to contemplate and adore. More than this, Mam hi partha vyapashritya ye pisyu papayonaya striyo vaishyastatha shudra te piyanti parangatim. Since even women, Vaishya and Shudra, whose births are regarded as inferior, attain, O part, Arjun, 
to the supreme goal by taking refuge in me. What Krishna is saying here is that even women, Vaishya and Shudra, as well as those other beings whose births are regarded as inferior to human births, such as animals, birds, bees and insects, attain to the supreme goal by taking refuge in him. Vaishya and Shudra stand for, as we have seen, only different stages of the path that leads to God. Women have been at times honored and at times denigrated, but they, as well as those at the Vaishya and Shudra stage, have an inherent and equal right to the performance of yoga. So the teaching of the Gita is for all of humanity, for all men and women, irrespective of their conduct and circumstance of birth or current stage of spiritual growth. It instructs all of us without any discrimination in what is propitious. The Gita thus embodies a universal message. Regarding inferior births and throwing light upon demoniacal nature, Krishna points out in verses 7 through 21 of chapter 16 that they who give up sacred precepts and only pray for namesake out of conceit are the most despicable among men. They who make vain prayers, which are but only nominally yagya, and do not revere the Supreme Being, are cruel and sinful. It hardly needs saying that since pious Brahman and royal sages, Rajarshi, attain to salvation, you should also renounce this miserable, ephemeral, mortal body and always engage in my worship. Let alone those men and women in the Brahman and Kshatriya Rajarshi stages. Ultimate absolution is within the reach of devotees in the stages of Vaishya and Shudra as well. Brahman is but a particular stage of spiritual growth which is blessed with all the virtues that lead the individual soul to the Supreme Spirit. That which incorporates the merits of peace, humble beseeching, perception, contemplation, and readiness to follow the signs from the worshipped God is the state of Brahman. A Kshatriya, who has been elevated to a sage by his pious life and austere devotion, is endowed with the spirit of accomplishment, prowess, sense of authority, and a natural reluctance to withdraw from the undertaken enterprise. The yogi who have arrived at this stage of yoga, it is needless to say, surely succeed in completing their journey. So Arjun also should renounce this joyless and transient human body to devote himself to Krishna's worship. It is for the fourth time that Krishna has spoken here of the four Varn, Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra. 
He has said in chapter 2 that there is no more profitable way than war for a Kshatriya, and subsequently added in chapter 3 that even dying for one's inherent dharma is more desirable. In chapter 4 he said that he is the creator of the four varn. It is meant by this, as it has been repeatedly stressed, that he has divided action into four phases on the basis of their innate properties. Performance of yagya is the one appointed task, and they who do it belong to four categories. At the point at which a worshipper is initiated into the way, he is a shudra because of his inadequate knowledge. When he has developed a partial capacity for accomplishment and accumulated some spiritual wealth, the same worshipper turns into a vaishya. Ascending yet higher and acquiring the strength to carve his way through the three properties of nature, he becomes a worshipper of the kshatriya class. And the same worshipper is elevated to the rank of a brahman when he is infused with the qualities that unite the soul with God. Kshatriya and brahman worshippers are nearer to attainment than the vaishya and shudra. Since even the latter are assured of the final bliss, there is hardly any need to speak anything of the lot of worshippers who have achieved already a higher status. Also, the Upanishad, of which the Gita is an abstract, abounds in allusions to women who were endowed with the sublime knowledge of God. Even all the strenuous but futile attempts to codify the rites and prohibitions derived from the spiritually timid and conventional study of the part of Ved known as the work, cannot make us ignore the unambiguous assertion by Krishna that women, as well as men, can participate in the ordained action of performing the worship that is named Yagya. So it is but proper that his last words to Arjuna in the chapter are words of encouragement for carrying out the deed of worship with firm devotion. Manmana bhava madbhakto Madhyaji maam namaskuru Maame vaishyasi uktvayvam Atmanam matparayanah If, taking refuge in and with a total devotion of the self to me, you contemplate, remember with humble reverence, and worship only me, Vasudev, you will attain to me. Remembering none except Krishna and restraining the mind from having any thought that is not of him. Firm devotion, incessant meditation and recital with humble reverence, and a total absorption of the soul in him. These are the prerequisites for Arjun as well as any other worshipper, realizing the immutable, eternal Supreme Spirit within him. Conclusion Addressing Arjun as a sinless devotee, Krishna has told him at the beginning of the chapter that he would elaborate and demonstrate to him the mysterious knowledge of God blessed with which he would break with this world of misery, and after knowing which there will remain nothing else for him to know. 
With this knowledge, he will be liberated from the bonds of the world. So this knowledge is the king of all learning. Real knowledge is that which provides access to the Supreme Spirit and is surely propitious. It is also what is known as secret teaching because it reveals the inscrutable magnificence of God. It is transparently fruitful, easy to practice, and imperishable. If we succeed in practicing even a little of it, it brings freedom from the great fear of recurrent birth and death. Practiced in even a small measure, the merit earned from it is never destroyed, and by virtue of it, the doer succeeds in finally arriving at the supreme goal. But there is a condition to this attainment. Rather than achieve the final bliss, the man who is devoid of faith gropes about in the vicious maze of worldly life. Men of discrimination understand the changes, the rise and fall, of what has elsewhere herein been referred to as yug-dharma. They give up unrighteousness to restrain the mind and engage in piety. When the restrained mind, too, is dissolved, the kelp, along with its different ages, or yug, comes to a close. After bringing about the union with perfection, the kelp also ceases. This is the doom, as it is called, in which nature is dissolved in the soul. After this, the sage's way of life is his innate quality, his nature. Yogeshwar Krishna has then told Arjun that ignorant men do not know him. They regard even him, the god of gods, as of no importance and as a mere mortal. This ironic situation of being ignored by contemporaries has faced every great sage. They have even been castigated, and Krishna was no exception to this. Although he dwells in the Supreme Being, he has a human body, because of which the ignorant contemptuously address him as a trivial mortal. The hopes and actions and knowledge of such men are all futile. They are the ones who erroneously believe that they are doers of selfless action just by saying that they are so, irrespective of whatever they do. These men of demoniacal inclination are unable to recognize the reality of Krishna. But they who have acquired the treasure of divinity know and worship him. They always think of and remember his excellence. There are two ways of intense devotion, of the one true action. The first is the yajna of knowledge, the way on which the worshiper treads, relying upon his own strength and after a careful review of his capacity. The other way is that on which the worshiper views the relationship between God and himself as akin to that between master and servant, and in which the prescribed action is entered upon with a sense of surrender to the accomplished teacher. These are the two points of view with which people worship Krishna. But the yagya they accomplish, the sacrifices they make, the performer and the faith, the remedy that cures the malady of worldly existence, are all Krishna himself. He is also the supreme goal that the worshiper aims at achieving at last. This yagya is performed by means of prayer, rituals, and procedures to bring about equanimity. 
There are worshippers, however, who adopt these means but desire heaven in return, and that is what Krishna bestows upon them. By the dint of their pious acts, they dwell in the celestial world of Indra and enjoy it for long. But when the earned merit is gradually worn out, they have to come back to the mortal world and undergo rebirth. Their action was right, and yet they are condemned to recurrent birth because of their desire. So total liberation from desire is a primary necessity. The yoga of those who remember and contemplate Krishna with perfect concentration, with the feeling that there is nothing else to desire except Him, and in whose act of worship there is not even the least flaw, is protected by Krishna Himself. Despite all this, men worship other gods. In fact, in worshipping even other gods, they worship Krishna Himself, but this mode of worship is not ordained. They are unaware that He is the enjoyer of their yagya, their sacrifices, and so, although they worship, they fail to realize Him. They thus fail in their quest. They only succeed in attaining to the fancied forms of gods, beings, and ancestors, whereas men who are truly devoted to Krishna dwell directly in Him and assume His own being. Krishna has represented the act of yagya as easy to practice. Whatever His worshippers offer Him, He accepts. So Arjun is advised to surrender all his devotional acts to Krishna. When he is completely detached, endowed with yoga, and freed from the bonds of action, he will know salvation, which also is Krishna himself. All beings are his, but there is no one whom he loves and no one whom he abhors. Yet, however, he dwells in his earnest devotee, and that devotee in him. Even the most wicked and sinful man who worships him with total dedication is worthy of being regarded as a saint, because his steady resolve will soon unite him with the Supreme Spirit and bless him with eternal peace. A true devotee of Krishna is never destroyed. Whether a shudra, a depraved man, an aborigine looked down upon by conventional culture, or one with whatever name he is known by, or a man or a woman, or one who has demoniacal nature and lowly birth, they all attain to the supreme glory if they take refuge in Krishna and worship him with firm intentness. So there is absolutely no doubt about the ultimate salvation of those who have reached the stage of Brahman and royal sages, Rajarshi, who are well endowed with virtues that unite the soul with God. Their final absolution is assured beyond any doubt. And so Arjun, too, should always remember and be reverent to Krishna. If he seeks shelter under him, he will attain to him and thus secure a state from which there is no going back. Thus, in the present chapter, Krishna has dwelt upon the spiritual knowledge which he himself brings to the state of consciousness. This is the sovereign knowledge, which is after it has once been awakened, doubtlessly propitious. Thus concludes the ninth chapter in the Upanishad of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita on the knowledge of the Supreme Spirit, the science of yoga, 
and the dialogue between Krishna and Arjun entitled Rajvidya Jagriti or Stirring to Spiritual Enlightenment. Thus concludes Swami Adgadanand's exposition of the ninth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita in Yatart Gita. Hari Om Tatsat.